Thanks for downloading this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. Our interviews bring you world-changing ideas and ask the big questions looking at research taking place here in Portsmouth. Today, John Wersey meets Dr. Alessia Trancasa, a senior lecturer in communications and applied linguistics in the School of Languages and Applied Linguistics. She specialises in looking at how language impacts and reflects violence against women. First and foremost, I look at violence against women from a linguistic point of view. So I look at the language used, particularly by the media, to talk about violence against women. And her research has taken place all over the world. I'm currently focusing on the UK, but I've worked in Singapore, Italy, uh, a little bit in India. So I'm focusing on things like online misogyny, cybersexism, online bullying uh, or hate speech, uh, particularly related to gender. It focuses on high-profile cases such as the Jimmy Savile inquiry and the Me Too movement. Alessia's interest in gender discrimination and violence grew from early observations of inequality in everyday life. She described how limitations to her own personal freedoms made her more aware of the subjects she would come to research. There is certainly an element of personal experience in having, having lived with discrimination in, in, between men and women mm-hmm. <laughs> from a very young age. And right. I have an older brother and I have always been very annoyed at the fact that he had a lot more freedom than I had. I used to be very annoyed at the fact that you know, he could be out with his friends until late and I couldn't because you know, I was, I'm, I'm a woman and you, you, know, you have to be, you know, there's bad people out there. And I always thought that, you know, that's not fair. You know, I should be able to, to go out. And, and I travelled a lot and when I was travelling, I was always annoyed. I had to kind of like, you know, pay more money for, you know, to get a taxi and make sure that I get home safely yeah. when a, a man wouldn't do that. And it's like, you know, I should get home safely no matter what. So these are just things, you know, that kind of were in my head, but I never thought I could make a job out of it. But then when I went to India to do an internship, I also then came across a whole series of other forms of violence against women, more extreme perhaps, I'm not sure. I mean, they happen on a continuum, they're not separate. It's this wider impact of misogyny, violence against women and the freedom of women that Alessia is particularly interested in. And that means looking at the language around it and the patterns of representation of violence against women when written. This raises the question of how language can actually amplify harmful patterns in unseen ways. Patterns in language are normally hiding some form of like discourse or ideology. So if you spot a pattern, there's normally something there to investigate. So, for example, linking it back to the cybersexism project, when we've looked at the R in Cell subreddit, they talk a lot about sexual activity with women Mm. in a way that is violent and aggressive and derogatory. It allows you to make links with other sexual practices that are considered much more normal and standard in society just because they don't happen in their context. Say for example in mainstream online pornography. So you're looking at the language, at the patterns there, uh, not only gives you enough evidence to say this is not a one-off, this is something that happens a lot, but this is not happening just here. So we might say that this is an extremist discourse, but look at the similarities with this other space 
yeah. where there are similar patterns in of, of, of language. Another example is um, in the corpus or in a collection of, of articles about rape, if we find that, for example, uh, in a lot of cases, um, there are a lot of passive, there's a lot of passive voice, so instead of saying, he raped her, there's a lot of, she was raped. This, these are two representations of the same event, and the idea is that language is all about choice. You yes. know, we can say he raped her, she was raped, we're describing the same event, but there is always a reason why we choose to say things in a certain way. We're always yes. choosing from a pool of options, but we choose one. Yes. And if we choose that, and especially if we choose it repeatedly, so there is a pattern, then that means that there is something there. So if passive language downplays the role of a perpetrator in violence against women, what other language patterns can mean a criminal action is represented more neutrally? It's pretty much the same methodology applied to different yeah. contexts, yeah. based on the idea that if you find patterns and repetition in language, then it probably means that there is something there. Yeah. So the question that's when it comes to become, this is when it becomes a sort of, we call it critical discourse analysis, is when yeah. we link these, these linguistic patterns to broader societal issues. And then we could, we could argue that this erasure, erasure of uh, perpetrator in, the, in language reflects a tendency to focus a lot on the victim's behavior rather than on the perpetrator mm. and a whole series of rape myths or you know false assumptions about about rape like for example that <coughs> women women uh, cause rape by you know dressing in a certain way or mm. men naturally tend to rape women in and so on and so on. there's a whole series of false assumptions basically or rape myths in the media and other written texts Patterns of language can seem to downplay rape and violence against women, and this can play out online and in real life too. The Me Too movement has brought this to mainstream attention in recent years, and Alessia touched on the importance of its work. The claim is that me, the Me Too movement has actually helped challenge that myth of the rapist being a, a monster. Yeah. So what I'm trying to find out is whether that actually has led to a change in discourse. So for example, if there, we have more cases of perpetrators that are like normal men, you know, yeah. or uh, of the type of assault, so it's not just, you know, violent rape, but uh, a, a higher presence of cases that might not involve violent aggression, but uh, they're still considered sexual assault. I mean, there are some problems linked to what the law considers a sexual assault, but that's the, that, that's the problem. While my students, you know, they, they, they kind of have the same problem, they tend to think that what the law says is, is, you know, is pretty much what things are, <laughs> but um, trying to get them to say, you know, the, lo the law is also flawed. If, if, you, if the law were perfect, then you know marital rape would never have been allowed. But marital mm. rape has only become a crime in the 1980s. Until the 1980s, a man could rape his wife and not go to go to, to court. So it's like you know we need to also challenge that. If the law says this is not sexual assault, we should yes. question whether that's the case or not. Some of it is a bit difficult because if the law doesn't consider something sexual assault, it's unlikely to appear in the media. Uh, but um, yeah, I think I think that if if the Me Too actually movement has actually brought about some important change, somehow that should reflect in the in the language of the media. And like Me Too, Alessia is keen to make an impact on misogyny in the real world, 
in addition to her academic contribution. I think it's a bit inevitable when you study these things that you want to do something to change it. Yes. It's kind of a consequence of what you do. You see so many things that are not right and so many things that are not just. And you, know, you see injustice, you just want to do something to make it right. And this is pretty much why I thought, you know, I can't just be studying this and being like, all theoretical about it if I don't do something outside of this. Yes. So this is why I, I volunteered with rape crisis centres. And, and it's also important because I think if you're studying these things, you, you of course, you know, the experience of people that uh, have been raped or assaulted, it's an individual experience. You can't, you can't say that, you know, you understand what's happened. Everybody experiences this differently and these things change over time but I think it's important to to if you if we want to be if you if I want to study this topic it's important for me to kind of work with activists people that work on, on the field in the field as a volunteer I've spoken to people that have been assaulted and and for me that has opened my eyes to how I understand rape as a crime our cultural language isn't just made up about what we say and hear but about what we read. The next step was to understand how this extends into media and the digital world. Alessia and her team did some particular work around using linguistics to identify abuse online in forums. So the idea initially was to find a way to identify hate speech online. Mm. Because the police are dealing with this type of stuff all the time, but they don't—they don't really seem—they don't seem to be equipped with with this um, because it's a relatively new thing, at least online. So we wanted to come up with a method to spot the abuse, and we thought, okay, let's look at the site that is known for being abusive to investigate their language. How, what do they say on this site that we can then apply to other sites? and see, okay, these features match, so this, yes. this is likely to be abusive because we found it on this website, which is known for being abusive. So we started looking at these linguistic features and as we were doing it, we kind of diverged a little bit because we, we realized that, uh, I know this sounds a little bit strange, but my, uh, I have an interest in, um, I've been reading a lot about uh, well, from a feminist perspective about online, and particularly por pornography, not just online, but mostly online, yeah. because that's where it's available the most these days. Um, so I had read quite a lot about the topic. And as I was analyzing the data on the Intel website, I started realizing that there were quite a lot of similarities between what I was reading on this site and what I had read about. Right. And this is where we kind of like came to the realization that the discourse of incel, w when it was abusive, it was mostly sexually abusive. It wasn't just, you know, Achille or, you know, mm. it was a lot, a lot worse than that. There are some people that are not incels and mm. that's where they start kind of like, you know, accusing each other and, you know, abusing each other. Right. And that's when you see these kind of things and you see that all this type of abuse is all sexualized. Right. But it's not, so that is kind of like, you know, going back to the original point, like how can we spot abuse online? And we realized that one of the ways to spot uh, online hate speech towards women in particular is to look for um, certain forms of uh, sexual abuse or sexualized language. Because when these forms occurred, it was pretty much always uh, a form of abuse. 
these are just means in which these ideas are amplified and that's what the internet has done it has created a network of misogyny or a network networked misogyny so it's all interconnected but it didn't start there yes. and i wouldn't say that you know the in, mm, pornography has created in cells sure sure but it has given them the language yeah. to express the hatred against yes. women and as well as working to identify abuse in forums online Alessia and her team want to change the way that newspapers, magazines, radio and TV all report on rape and violence against women. There's an, an assumption in, in, uh, in linguistics, and at least in my field, that language and society work are interconnected and mm. from you know, language reproduces society, a sort of mirror of society, but can also influence society, particularly through the media, considering their power and their ability to, be, to have their voices amplified and also legitimized. That was my initial goal. I want to look at this, highlight all the things that are wrong with it, and then go and tell you know, newspapers this is how you have to write about it. And then I realized that actually that's not, first and foremost, it's not that easy. It's not that something that I've completely given up on, uh, but so I've, in changing these things take a lot of time. Giving a set of rules about how they should write about things is not necessarily always going to work. So it's about changing mentalities. It's about, it's about changing the way in which people think rather than saying okay instead of using uh, the word victim use the word survivor or instead of using the passive voice use the active voice or you know these examples it's about changing the way in which people understand what uh, rape is about which can lead to more profound changes. For Alessia it's not just about impacting the media or creating a set of rules to eliminate these patterns in language it's about adjusting people's mindset to violence against women. And teaching classes of students to think differently is another way to do this. I give them a scenario in which I ask them to identify and decide, you should say, whether they think that that scenario, a rape happened or didn't. And then I put together all the answers. And then I give the answers back to them and I get them to think about what everybody has written. And they actually realise that it's, it's interesting because pretty, pretty much everybody gives the same answer. Uh, and then we get to think to, about how actually, you know, what kind of answer could you have given but you yeah. a lot of language is about what has not been said which is more difficult to analyze than what has been said yes. because it's uh, analyzing silence or absence is more different more difficult than analyzing presence and, and voice so they they kind of start thinking about actually we haven't thought about this and how certain ways of thinking about violence are ingrained uh, how how they think, for example, about, you know, uh, rape is all about consent, it's about giving consent, but nobody ever says, oh, somebody had to ask for consent. Everybody talks about giving consent. Mm. Or rape is about saying no, um, instead of uh, thinking, thinking that in a lot of occasions people don't refuse things by saying an outright no. Uh, so, you know, rape is not necessarily, consent is not about saying a clear no because that put the emphasis on the victim or survivor who has to say a clear no but could could rape and consent be about something else uh, is consent really do, do somebody really need to say no yes. to deny consent because then there are a lot of like um, blurred 
situations uh, like what, what happens when somebody is drunk what happens if the person is your partner what if what happens if you are a woman in prostitution uh, you know there's a whole series of difficult situations so yeah they do get to think about these questions with with me thanks for listening to this episode of life solved from the university of portsmouth you can find out more about the work of alessia and her team as well as our other projects by going online to port.ac.uk slash research. If you want to share your thoughts on this programme, you can shout about this podcast using the hashtag LifeSolved. Next time... Niantic, who designed Pokemon, always said they always had the intention to use the game to sort of bring people together to do things yeah. for, the, for the great good of society. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to get every episode of Life Solved automatically. And please do tell us what you think with a review and rating if you get a moment. We can't wait to share another fascinating discovery next time.